You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Catherine Schultz, who is a writer at The New Yorker and also the author of a number of books, most recently this book called Lost and Found. It's a memoir. And prior to that, a decade ago or so, this book called Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me on. You know, when I originally thought to have you on the show, I was planning on speaking all about being wrong because this is one of my favorite topics. I'm always interested in talking to people about discovery, talking about the limits of our knowledge, talking about how we come to know what we know and what we don't know. And then I discovered this memoir of yours. And there are some interesting continuities. This book is a story in part of two very important moments in your life, but they serve as pretexts for reflections on losing and discovering things, both the mundane and the very important. And I think you get the sense from reading both books that you're the kind of person that people would love to hang out with and talk to because your mind is always thinking about relationships between things Mm. that you observe as you go through life. The first book gives such a window into how you think that it's not that much of a departure for you to jump to memoir. What inspired you to write a memoir as opposed to something that was more conventionally journalistic? First of all, thank you for noticing the similarity between these books. I think a lot of people experience them as startling departures. I actually do think there's a lot of overlap. It's nice of you to say that I seem like I'd be fun to hang out with or I'm thinking about relationships. I actually think I have this mind that, for whatever reason, is very drawn to these large but semi-invisible categories of human experience. So in the first book, I was thinking about wrongness and what it's like to be wrong. And in this new book, I got very interested in this experience of losing, which is a very strange category in that it, you know, accommodates so many wildly different things, your car keys, your faith, an election, somebody you love, (laughs) your mind, and then this converse category of discovery, which is equally strange. We find completely mundane things like the glasses that we lost, but we also find a vaccine for a pandemic, or we find God, or we find the person we want to marry. So you're right to think that these are extremely consistent little byproducts of my mind. But in terms of the turn to memoir, I had been thinking about that category of loss in all of its wonderful capaciousness and strangeness and kind of wanting to write about it for quite a while. And it just never came together in that way that as a writer, there's like always some piece you're allegedly going to write, but you can't quite make it work. So even before the loss of your father, then you were thinking about this as a topic. Exactly. And then actually precisely what happened is my father did die. And very soon thereafter, I understood exactly why I hadn't been able to write about loss before, because it did not have that kind of gravitas and emotional anchor and very intimate connection that it did the minute my dad died. And so it felt quite clear to me that the way to write about loss in a way that would be meaningful and in a way that would get at the kinds of questions that were interesting to me, but also connect to other people who were reading it, uh, was to have that very personal story at the heart of it, which does seem to me like fundamental. The fundamental loss is the loss of life, our own or, or someone else's. 
And so that was the kind of detour into the land of memoir. And same with discovery. That's a very interesting category. But I think for me in my own life experience, I suspect for readers as well, it really benefits from this personal and, and animating story of falling in love, the most wonderful find any of us can have of someone who just fills us with joy and changes the entire forward trajectory of our life. I think at the heart of the book, at least for me, was Menno's Paradox. Because in Menno's Paradox, there never really is any kind of fresh discovery. Everything is a recovery of something. If you have a word on the tip of your tongue and it's like you've forgotten it, but then when it comes to you, it's like going back and getting something that disappeared. And I think Plato's theory of love is very similar, that you're not encountering someone for the first time, but you're kind of encountering someone that you kind of lost track of at some point previously in your life. And I think you make parallels to that in both books, this idea of how knowledge springs from a realization that you're wrong in some way. Loss and discovery, being wrong and learning, these are both complementary concepts yeah, very much one entire kind of subset of the category of discovery, I think feels pretty indistinguishable from learning. We, we discover facts and ideas and information. Falling in love is a kind of learning. You're learning about someone, you're learning how their mind works, where they're from, what they like, their whole background. And I think often learning in quite literal ways. They're interested in some topic you previously didn't know anything about or didn't care anything about. And then because you love someone who loves it, you start to learn about it. So I do think that not every example of finding is an example of learning, but pretty much every example of learning is an example of finding. When you were talking about losing, you talked about the valley of lost things. You talk about it in a couple different contexts. You mentioned Orlando Furioso. I think this is a book that I've always intended to read and probably never will. I'm wondering if you actually read it. There's lots of stories like that where nothing's ever completely lost. It's always going to be found at some point in the future. And I think that's traditionally what people have viewed the process of losing their loved ones as, that there is never any kind of permanent loss. Do you think that we kind of modern people have an element of that somewhere when we experience loss or do we experience loss in a way that is profoundly different and more permanent than our ancestors? First of all, I just have to say that Orlando Furioso is staggeringly strange if you ever choose to read it. <laughs> I've just seen like half a dozen operas based on it, but I've never actually read the book. You probably have some feel for it then. But yes, it's really a fabulous in both senses work of literature. It was the earliest example I could come across of this quite persistent idea in the human imagination of a valley of lost things. You know, some place where everything that we lose somehow magically congregates, which I find to be a very beautiful and evocative idea. We can't find those things, but they somehow find each other. There's this sort of imaginary world in which we could go there and wander around find our lost things, but also see everything else that had been lost by everyone else over the years and centuries. It's a beautiful and very strange idea. But in terms of this question of, are we somehow uniquely pained by loss or by the specific loss that is death because we live in a less enchanted and less theological world than our ancestors? I don't know that I would agree to that proposition in part because I find both the past and the present equally fascinating and complicated on that front. Many people alive today find consolation in the idea that their loved ones are not permanently lost. I'm not one of those people. I have some amount of envy for those people. I am married to one of those people. 
devout Lutheran who does not have any glib notions about a, a heaven or an afterlife, but does have a sense of a meaning that continues beyond our own lifespans. So I certainly don't think it's true that most people alive today don't have that kind of solace. I think many people have it, even if they don't adhere to more conventional scriptural tenets. But to be honest, I find the past equally puzzling on this front. The mere fact that organized religion, for instance, was a more potent and often fundamentally political force that was running cities and states and nations and empires does not, to me, offer a very thorough accounting of what individual people were thinking in the privacy of their homes when they were grieving their loved ones. And I'm not convinced that the pain of losing someone you love is much ameliorated in any direction by almost anything. I give you our friend C.S. Lewis, a very devout Christian, who found that in his hour of greatest need after the death of his wife, his Christianity was tragically unconsoling to him. But we also in the modern world don't seem to have any real formalized processes of grieving. There's no rituals that we can all fall back on. It's like we hide death and we have our funerals and then that's it. We kind of move on and everybody's left to figure out what to do about it after they get their casseroles at the house or they have the party and the wake and the funeral, that's it. So does everyone have to figure this out on on their own or we don't seem to have any cultural toolbox that helps us to navigate loss? Now that I think is true. I absolutely think that the combination of the decay of traditions around the dying and the grieving, the increasing separation of people from their families and their communities in a wildly mobile society means that, yeah, many of us are pretty adrift in the aftermath of death, which is really hard because I think those traditions exist precisely to create some order and to hem in that adriftness because the adriftness is going to be there anyway. The emotional unmooring that follows the death of someone you love. And to have that doubly, to have the emotional experience, but then not have the kind of prescribed steps or the sense of there is a deep tradition to how we handle it, and now I too am moving through it, and others will help me because others have been here before, generation upon generation. It's not that those traditions take away anyone's grief, but they give it riverbanks to flow down, and they do give you a sense of I am part of a cosmic scheme of things and part of a cultural scheme of things. And in that sense, I think they can be profoundly comforting. So yes, I do think many of us today face death with fewer support structures around us than people in the past did. Is there an art of losing? You referenced Elizabeth Bishop a number of occasions in the book. And there's similarities between losing your keys and losing a loved one. That sounds like the most horrible thing that anyone could say, but are there indeed similarities? Can people size this muscle where they get comfortable with change? And certainly I think Buddhists would say something about losing attachment and they mean it in both kind of trivial and profound ways where you shouldn't be attached to your keys and if you lose them, no big deal. And you shouldn't be attached to life and you shouldn't be attached to your loved ones. You need to learn how to persevere and power through. Is that a crazy notion or is there something to it? That is... Truly one of the animating questions of my book. I I remember very vividly, there was a stage that I was working on it. At the time, I was living in this house that had these large glass doors flanked on both sides Mm -hmm. by huge, almost floor-to-ceiling 
windows. And I was in the habit of using them as a whiteboard, basically. When I got really stuck on my writing, I would just try outlining on it, narrowing down what the problems were. And there was this moment when, for a very long time, on one of those windows, it said, why is my father like a sock? (laughs) Meaning, you have a missing sock, and you have your dead father. And what are these things doing in the same category? Is that linguistic coincidence and we can learn nothing from it? Or is there something actually meaningful that we describe all of these things as a kind of loss? And I come down a little bit on the Elizabeth Bishop side. I come down on the side that it is meaningful that these are all instances of loss, which is not to say that they're identical or even analogous in most respects. But I do think that there is posture we can adopt towards loss. And I think this is what Elizabeth Bishop was getting at. And I think this is what the Buddhists in their infinite wisdom that I envy and fail over and over again to emulate are are getting at, which is this notion that at the heart of existence, for whatever reason, wildly beyond our control, is the fact that everything in our lives is wildly impermanent. The sock comes and goes, the father comes and goes, everything comes and goes. And trying to figure out how to live with that in some kind of semi sane and peaceful fashion does strike me as a key to the whole shebang. Well, I was talking to somebody recently about magical thinking. And the uh, one example of that is how people will accumulate belongings. They'll have ticket stubs and other kinds of memorabilia that scatter around their houses. You reference when you're moving out of your parents' house, you're moving, helping them to move out of their house. There was all sorts of boxes of stuff that reminded you of your childhood and so forth. It seems like That too is that reluctance to discard that stuff is is a reluctance to acknowledge the ephemeral nature of your existence. It's sort of a way of holding on to the memories, lest they, they disappear, you disappear. And I guess you experience something akin to a phantom limb syndrome. You describe your feelings about your father after his death as something like a phantom limb syndrome. But we think of phantom limb syndrome as a pathology, but in this case, it's not a pathology if it's within certain bounds, right? I mean, it's sort of a a natural, even desirable part of the mourning process. Sure. I think most human emotion is on a continuum from the healthy version to the pathological version. I give you joy and sorrow and a manic depression. There's always a spot you can be on a spectrum that's healthy and a spot that isn't healthy. And likewise, it's interesting, this question of keeping around memorabilia and mementos of the past. Yes, you could say that is a failure to accept the fact that everything in life comes and goes and a desperate attempt to hold on to it. But I think you could also just regard that as a natural way to remember all you've had. And speaking of that spectrum, of course, at some point it becomes hoarding and it does become pathological if you can't let go of anything. But if you are merely keeping photos of your child from every age of her life because it fills you with delight to remember them all and because you think someday her child or her grandchild might want those. That to me is beautiful and that's actually the sweet spot of, um, of course, your child's childhood is gone. And yet recognizing that it was there and that it was beautiful seems to me exactly the right thing to do. Now, I think when you're talking about finding, you're also making comparisons between the finding of the trivial and the finding of the more profound. And I think you started that section by talking about how you went to a junk shop and found a first edition of Langston Hughes, and you also found a little whale or something. And when you start reading that chapter, you don't realize that you're going to be talking about falling in love for most of the chapter. But you talk about how how joyful it is to find something. You raised the question, 
is it more joyful to find things that you're, you're looking for, or is it more joyful to find things that you're not looking for? What's the difference between these two experiences? Because obviously sometimes we deliberately set out in search of something, whether that is you're going to that junk shop because you collect uh, 19th century cat figurines and you're looking for a specific one and you happen to find it or you wander into that junk shop for no reason whatsoever, as I did, and pull a book off a shelf. And yes, it's gorgeously signed by its author Langston Hughes. These serendipitous discoveries, I wouldn't say that they're more joyful because it's incredibly satisfying, Mm -hmm. as we all know, to find something you've been looking for a long time. But they are a kind of interesting confrontation with, I think, the larger forces of the universe. And in that respect, they have more in common with losing because you don't mean for it to happen. We don't mean for our losses to happen and we don't mean for these serendipitous finds to happen. And when they do, it is very difficult not to be a little bit amazed that something in the universe has conspired to make this thing happen. I can't believe I was in this store on this day. I pulled exactly one book off of this shelf. How did it get here? How did I get here? And certainly that's magnified as you move up the scale of significance with these discoveries. It's why people feel about finding their loved one, that there is an element of almost magic in it, or if they're, if they are deists, an element of, of divine ordained planning. Well, in, in your book, there's really three love stories in the book, right? Your own and your parents and your in-laws. And in all three of those love stories, there was serendipity involved. It was love at first sight or something close to it. But I think studies show that most couples today find each other through dating apps, which presumably means that they're starting off with some kind of search criteria and they're narrowing down the field and so forth. I I wonder, do you think that, I think in the past, of course, there have always been these kind of matchmakers. There's always been, certainly in some cultures, there's been uh, arranged marriages and so forth. But at least I think for our parents' generation and their parents' generation, there's quite a bit of serendipity involved. Do, Do you think that somehow changes the nature of this view of specialness or divine spark? I doubt it. You know, I suspect if you could survey everyone who did find a partner online one way or another, that would be the preamble. But the actual story would be, I walked into the restaurant and I knew right away. I don't know that the mere technological mechanism of bringing people together, it's not fundamentally that different than I went to a party one night. So I I don't think it probably takes any of the enchantment or the sense of wonder or awe out of the experience of falling in love. I I think you you referenced Gauss's right scientific discovery process where he realizes something is true before he has any insight into why it's true or he hasn't proven why it's true. Do you think it's the same way with love? You love somebody and you don't really know why and then you spend the rest of your time together backfilling the reason, right? Backfilling the story and trying to confabulate why it is that you actually love this person. Is there an element of that? Well, I certainly think there's an element of figuring it out. I don't think it's necessarily confabulation, but I think if you have the experience of falling in love quite quickly or being just wildly, unignorably drawn to someone for reasons you can't quite understand, and then it works out, and of course that doesn't always happen, and also plenty of people fall in love in other more methodical ways. But if you have that experience... I think it is followed by an experience of a kind of steady revealing unto you of why that happened. And some kernel of it, I think, is always a mystery. I know my partner infinitely better than I did when we first sat down to lunch together. And yet there's the kind of wild, unknowable core of 
rightness and attraction that it's its own atomic unit. I don't think you can parse it farther than that. Mm -hmm. But you certainly realize countless other reasons why a relationship feels right and works. And to me, that's part of the joy of falling in love. It's not just this kind of one-off find, right? You find the person and then you find out all about them and you gradually learn more and more. And as we were saying, learning is a kind of finding and it's very joyful. Well, I mean, at least since Dante, we've had this view that romantic love is sort of a transcendent experience and it's something which could be thought of as a substitute for the divine or compliments to the divine for many of us. But it also then puts a lot of pressure on people to have this ideal romance. It was easy for Dante to have an ideal romance because he never actually spent any time together. And you highlight how most of the stories of romance kind of end at the joining. They end after you go to romantic comedy and they finally get together and that's it. The fights and the, and the difficulties are, that's for the sequel that never happens. I'm surprised you didn't use the word pragma, but I think pragma is one of the right types of love that, that mm-hmm. Greeks talk about. And there aren't a lot of books about that. There aren't a lot of novels or poems uh, about pragma. You've reflected on that quite a bit in your book and in your life. And I know this book is not meant to be a self-help book. I read every book like it's a self-help book. I can't help it. I'm always looking for insight and advice in everything I read. But I think you, you do have some interesting insights into what it takes. And you recount this story of a fight that you had. And like a good journalist, I think you, you couldn't let a good fight go to waste. You had to find some kind of insight in that fight. Could you maybe talk about that? We see how many marriages end up in divorce. I know to some degree that's a natural course of things, but is there something about romance that people get wrong, makes it more difficult for them to navigate the difficulty of love? That's a softball right there. (laughs) (laughs) I think that love is wildly complicated because humans are wildly complicated. And I think initial conditions matter enormously in love as in all things. It's very hard to answer that question in broad brushes because everyone walks into a relationship with an entire constellation of independent factors, any of which may be determinative, especially in combination with your partner's constellation of factors. And that's your background and your history and your style of emotional communication and also just very practical circumstantial things. How much financial stress do you live with? How much medical stress do you live with? How much familial stress do you live with? How much pain? How much suffering? It's just on and on. So far be it for me to suggest that marriages or relationships of any kind are a reflection of simply some kind of failure to grasp the nature of romance and nurture it appropriately. That said, do I think that relationships are like anything else and we can learn to be better at them? Of course. I've never yet met anything outside of realms of sheer actual genius that that don't follow that rule. And I think my strongest feeling about relationships, because initial conditions do matter so much, is, you know, your first move just has to be to pick the right person. Some of that is compatibility, but some of it is just this deep conviction that they're right for you and you love them. Because I think again and again, in stressful or difficult moments in a relationship, you have got to be grounded in the sense of this is the one. And it will be challenged and it will be put to the test in countless ways. And if that's quicksand, if some part of you entered into the thing a little uncertain, it's not going to be sufficient to sustain you, at least not over the long haul of a complicated life, and all lives are complicated. But I also think there are probably some shared obstacles and some shared skill sets in relationships. Certainly the booming couples counseling and relationship advice business think so, and I don't think they're entirely wrong about that. I write about that fight because it seems to me that One of the core realities about relationships is that 
whoever you choose to spend your life with um, is a different person than you. <laughs> and that is utterly obvious and yet strangely hard to wrap our minds around. So my partner and I are, are overtly different in some ways and subtly different in other ways. And when we first got together, it was the overt differences that I noticed. There's an age difference between us. There's a class difference between us. There is a difference in religious background between us. There's a geographic difference between us. And those things, because we put so much weight, I think, especially on class and religion in this culture, and because they are, in fact, really determinative of a lot of things about how you grow up and who you are, those felt pressing and obvious when we first met. But the actual difference, I think, that we really had to sort out as we spent more and more time together was just a difference in emotional wiring, which just brought home to me this reality that I don't care if you and your partner are from identical class backgrounds and identical religious backgrounds, and you're the same age, and you have known each other since the fourth grade. You are different people, and you are going to have different needs and different emotions and different reactions to certain situations. And all of that has got to be navigated with compassion and generosity if you are going to make it. That, I think, is the core of what I was looking at in this fight, which was about something utterly ridiculous. My partner and I managed to get into a fight about, of all things, whether you are more likely to see a black bear if you are out just on a casual hike for the day or if you are deep in the backwoods on a multi-day like backpacking adventure. This is like the dumbest thing I can possibly... If I had sat every, down... Everyone to, who reads that can identify with something similar. That's the thing, right? I mean, it, it's truly the stupidest thing I could ever fight about. On the other hand, like, who has not fought about a stupid thing in their life? The vast majority of fights, and some of them are substantive, are fighting over finances or affairs, heaven forbid, or whatever. Some of them makes quite a lot of sense why you would fight over them, but a lot of them are absolutely absurd. Because, of course, that's not what you're really fighting about, right? And so I wanted to take the time to walk readers through that and say what was actually going on here and what was actually difficult here and what was the resolution, not of that fight per se, but of the kind of larger issue of how do you and your partner operate when there is a problem between you? Because that is probably the core of making things work. It's easy to make things work when everything is delightful. The question is, what do you do when it isn't? You know, what I was wondering when I was reading that is in your Being Wrong book, you talk about a number of organizational solutions to institutional error. You talk about checklists, you talk about postmortems, you talk about scientific method. There's all sorts of approaches that you can take to, if not minimize the amount of error, learn the most from your errors. I teach in a business school and we spent a lot of time teaching people how to run organizations, how to work within organizations, how to get the most out of organizations. But the organization that everyone spends most of their time with is their family unit. And you spend maybe eight, nine hours a day working at your company, but then you're really spending 24 hours a day with your family. And yet no one's given any kind of training in this. You've read a lot of great books that tell you all sorts of things, both scientific and literary. But I think most people are, if you don't have parents that you can look up to as role models, as you did, and maybe your success to the extent that you've had success is do more due to your having parents that were successful in their relationship as opposed to the reading and the reflecting that you've done. Why is it that we don't teach people, whether it's how to lose, how to love, why do we leave it up to osmosis? Why do we leave it up to spontaneous absorption or maybe parental instruction or peer discussion? It, it doesn't seem like we, as a society, take seriously the art of living, just normal lives. I think that's right. And osmosis is what it's left up to. And in that sense, you're either lucky or you're not. 
I did absorb lessons about marriage from two very happily married who were a few months shy of their 50th anniversary when my dad died. Same with my partner. She comes uh, also from a very happy marriage. And so we walked into our own marriage with very strong models of what enduring love looks like in good times, in difficult times, and and for all time. I, I think you've kind of identified why we don't help people more with the challenge of sustaining meaningful relationships, which is that we don't really help people in general with the question of how to live. We pour plenty of energy, as you note, into the private sector questions of how to run an effective company or be a good manager or improve your bottom line or not ruin your business through a series of catastrophic errors. There's a vast literature on all of that stuff. And of course, there's also a vast literature about self-help, as you say. It's not exactly lack of people doing serious thinking about how to achieve whatever it may be, serenity, a happy marriage, raising great kids. There's infinite industries around this stuff. But I don't think the actual structure of modern life attends in many ways to, but really what would it look like to organize even a little part of our society and our culture around the idea of happiness or wisdom or contentedness, or health. These are not, these are just, even physical health, right? These are not the priorities that we express and operate and organize around as a culture. So I guess it's no surprise, really, that everyone is left to flail in the privacy of their home or the privacy of their therapist's office or the privacy of their friends out talking at a restaurant on a Friday night about their relationship to sort out how to do these things. I think we've collectively decided it's private and That's not untrue. Parts of it are inevitably going to be really private. But could we actually create better conditions for happier families? Of course. I mean, I give you the very basic fact that many of the stresses on families are absolutely structural and societal. And they are things like healthcare calamities. And they are things like childcare. And they are things like financial precarity. And letting all of those kind of continue to unfold, those are all choices against sustaining happy relationships and families. Well, I think, you know, in the book, Being Wrong, you're really offering up a vision of a philosophical disposition where one is continuously aware of the fact that one could be wrong at all times and to essentially have confidence intervals around everything that you believe. And you encourage people to not let the pain associated with recognizing one's wrongness overwhelm them and to find joy in discovering that one is wrong. This was written 10 years ago or so. And we've gone through, I think, a period in our world where no one wants to be wrong. And not sure that what you've been advocating has really sunk in to the degree that you were hoping it would sink in. But this seems to be something that is applicable not just on the political arena or in the scientific arena, but also in the personal arena. Having that humility and understanding that one doesn't know all the answers and that one could be wrong and that one should enjoy this process of discovery in one's life as a spouse and as a parent. Do you think that there's no disconnect here, right? There's no disposition that one has in the public realm and one has in the private realm. Aren't all of these things that you're discussing relevant in both realms? Yeah, I think they are. To the question of how do you make a relationship work, one way not to make it work is to be unable to admit that you're wrong. And it's hard. I think when you're in the midst of a fight or friction with your partner, it's very difficult to not inhabit your own 
in that moment, extremely narrowed field of vision and your own sense of woundedness and your own narrative about what happened or whatever may be going on. But you just can't. You have to develop a kind of bifocal vision where clearly, and again, there are exceptions to this, people are genuinely wronged in relationships as in other things, but in a basically happy relationship where that's not the case, you have to be able to, at some point, step back and say, what's actually going on here? And what does this look like from the other side of this relationship? And why, if I love and trust this person, are they upset or having this different experience than I'm having? And I do think that it's absolutely consistent with a, a a public way of being, a way of being in your job, a way of being around your community members and fellow citizens. I forget who you quoted, but you said, you can either be right or you can be married. <laughs> you can be one or the other. I forget who that was. But you know, I think the nicer version of that is you can either be right or be kind. You can either insist upon your own rightness or you can be generous and loving towards those you care about. Right. And you say that if you think you're right and the other person is wrong, it's for a number of reasons. You think they're wrong because they're stupid or they're wrong because they're misinformed or they're wrong because they're evil, right? We ascribe those motivations or explanations for why there's this disconnect. And if you're trying to learn from wrongness and you're trying to create more productive interactions with, with others, which of those needs to be attacked first, right? You said kindness. So kindness would be the okay, don't assume that the other person is evil, but I guess it's also don't assume that the other person is stupid. So in relationships, right, you start with that. You start with giving right. people the benefit of the doubt. And I guess that extends to people you're not in a relationship too. Right. I mean, hopefully none of us are in intimate relationships with anyone we think is ignorant, stupid, or evil. If you are, listener, get out. But yeah, and, and I certainly think these are not generous ways to treat our fellow human beings. That said, I think we live in very trying times. You're, of course, right to point out that this kind of ideal of epistemological humility that I was advancing when I wrote Being Wrong and that I still stand by, it would be an understatement to say it's not really the dominant mode of our cultural movement. <laughs> and that makes it hard, including for me. I stand by that book and I stand by what I'm arguing for in that book. But I will tell you, I don't think I could have written this book in the last handful of years, partly because I think I wrote it at a moment when the seams in our collective community, while of course present, were not as stark unto me as they feel right now. And do I believe in entertaining the possibility that you are wrong? Do I believe that's a good posture to inhabit in, in almost all realms of life? Yeah, I do. But I'll tell you, there's a limit to that even for me, meaning you're not going to convince me that I'm wrong, that a healthy and functional democracy depends on everybody having the right to the franchise in an unfettered and, and unimpeded way. You're not going to convince me of the moral inferiority of any group of human beings vis-a-vis -vis any other group of human beings. Like I, there are there are backstops. There are there are areas in which I'm not willing to concede I'm wrong because I believe it is morally unconscionable to do so. Yeah. That book has, on the one hand, it's hard to imagine a time it could possibly be more relevant in the sense that I think everyone could really use a dose of humility. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people riding around on high horses right now and a lot of very alarming and very dangerous certainty. On the other hand, as I said, it would be a tricky book for me to write exactly at this moment. I, I know you're not a sociologist, but hey, I'm going to ask you to speculate anyway, because it seems like you, you enjoy that. You mentioned in, in the lost portion of Lost and Found that after you, your father died, you started catastrophizing. You started feeling older. You started stumbling around. You started making more mistakes. You started all sorts of things flowed from that. And I wonder if we talk about this moment that we have in our public realm where people are less willing to acknowledge 
wrongness. Could this also be just a result of the stressors that people are going through? We don't have a good mechanism for dealing with the constant change that we're experiencing and people are losing jobs, people are losing communities, they're losing all sorts of things and they don't really quite know how to respond to it. And one way to respond to it is to double down and to dig in and be more certain about the things that you believe. Is there something about the not having the ability, not having the mechanisms in place to deal with loss and deal with stressors that kind of makes one less likely to acknowledge being wrong or less likely to have intellectual humility? I mostly assume so. I think that extreme stress is bad for us in, in any number of ways, and it's not hard to imagine how it would produce a kind of rigidity or an attraction to rigidity and certainty. That said, who knows, right? I tell the story in the book of my father, who had a tremendously difficult childhood that was marred by every kind of trauma and dysfunction. I mean, he lost essentially his entire maternal line in Auschwitz. He grew up in poverty. He grew up in war zones. He grew up in violence. Even when he finally got to this country as a Jewish refugee, his family of origin by then was understandably just profoundly traumatized and not a um, warm and comforting home. There was really kind of no stable ground mm -hmm. under him. And yet he emerged from all of that as, as truly one of the most joyful and ebullient people you'd ever meet, but also a, a truly brilliant and flexible and compassionate thinker. So I'm very reluctant to assert any one-to-one -one correlation between circumstance and character, you know, which isn't to say I believe everyone should be able to rise above their circumstances and these things are irrelevant, but of course I don't believe anything like that. And my father would roll over in his, in his grave if he heard me say any such thing. And yet I don't think it's necessarily useful to be pat in the other direction either. And suggest that these kinds of circumstances are wholly determinative or that we don't have some accountability for how we behave and how we treat one another, even in the face of stress and difficult circumstances. Now, you're a new parent, and congratulations on that. That means that you are essentially going to be imprinting on your child all sorts of things. I'm sure you're going to have another book in you <laughs> about this, but how have you thought about passing on the virtues that you articulate in I think both books, right? Is that something that, that you think about doing explicitly or is this something that, that you expect to pass on more by example? Both, I think. Although I certainly think example is always by far the most powerful. And my partner and I talk a lot about um, what we believe our job is as parents and what we would like to equip our daughter with for her life and for her happiness and for her kind of contributions to society. So I certainly think of parenting as a profoundly moral job. I think it is, it does feel incumbent on me to to help my daughter do what you and I were just saying that the world at large doesn't necessarily do right now, which is sort out how to live. Like, what does it mean to be a good person, to be a good daughter, a good sibling, a good friend? What does it mean to be a member of a community? How do you create an inner universe that is expansive and interesting but stable? How do you create a child who is resourceful and compassionate? These are questions of burning interest and part of what is really fun and fascinating about being a parent is they inevitably have to play out between the question of are you going to take a nap and, and which book are we going to read at bedtime and what's for breakfast today? So there's this kind of wonderful um, meeting of the utterly quotidian and 
deeply profound and moral and ethical and cosmological in the act of parenting. And I must say, I find it quite delightful. So yet another another finding, right? Having a child is like a, an act of discovery, right? It's like finding a new human being in your life. It's truly the most amazing act of discovery imaginable. And much like falling in love, because of course it is a kind of falling in love, it's not one discovery. It's a new discovery every hour and every day. And also this kind of endless anticipated discovery, because you are always thinking, who is this little creature? And what is she going to be? And what is she going to like? And what is she going to do? And which of these parenting challenges will we face? And which will be irrelevant? And who are we raising here? And that's, that's, it's, it's just truly endlessly fascinating. So will we have another sequel? We have a sequel to Lost and Found on the horizon. Do you plan on continuing the genre of memoir? I have no idea. I was quite surprised to find myself writing a memoir in the first place, so I don't presently have plans to do it again. As you observed, the last book was quite a long time ago, so I'm pretty picky when it comes to book-length subjects. So I don't know. Speaking of finding, somewhere down the road that I will stumble upon something else that feels to me like it really wants to be a book, but I can't say that I have the first notion of when that will be or what it will be. It'll probably be some kind of inadvertent discovery as you're thinking about what to do next. There's plenty in here that we didn't get to in your book, Being Wrong. I really highly recommend it. Adventures in the Margin of Error. It's worth a read. It's worth a reread. And also Lost and Found, which is unputdownable and super refreshing. Thank you, Catherine, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.